San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. Welcome to It's Your Money and Your Life. We're coming at you with 50,000 watts of power. We're heard not just in San Diego County, but Orange County, L.A. County, up the coast of Seattle on a good night, down to Cabo, out to the desert. And if you download um, the app for 760K FMB, you can hear us uh, live there. And we also are on iTunes if you search the title of the show. And I typically uh, introduce the co-host of the show, Richard Musio, CPA extraordinaire at this time, but um, and family office guy, of course, serving high net worth families. But he is at a family obligation tonight uh, at a graduation of a very close family friend. So it's just going to be myself and <laughs> 12 other guests. So it's not going to be... A- I, it's not going to be a marathon. It's going to be a sprint, so uh, pay attention. Uh, but it's going to be a great show because we're at the magnificent 6th uh, uh, Annual Barry Goodnight Dinner. And I'm going to introduce right now the, um, the founder of the event. And we're at her, at her home and in her yard tonight, and her name is Michelle Lirac. How are you, Michelle? Really good, Joe. <laughs> it's uh, glad to be back. It's glad to have you back. This is three Thanks. years in a row of award-winning radio here at The Very Good Night. So yeah, thanks for ex- coming. Yeah, you keep piling on more guests every, every year, so we're going to have to expand the show to an extra hour next year. I don't I know. I don't know where we're going to put them. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, I mean, you started out, what, six years ago, um, and you only had about 70, whatever inspired you to do this in the first place? I mean. So after I, I quit my practice of law in 2008, went to work on a goat farm in Sonoma. I, uh, I, <laughs> a lot of things happened there. But one thing that I noticed was that there was this really cohesive food community there. And I didn't feel the same way in San Diego, even though I knew that we had more farms per capita, more organic farms per capita, more family farms per capita than anywhere in the state and most of the country. Like 7,000 or and something. And so right? it occurred to me, what we need to do is get everyone together. So let me invite all the chefs I know who care about sustainable food, all the farmers I know, food activists, and a handful of food writers, sit around the same table and have dinner. Mm-hmm. And that was the idea. And it was small. And each year it's gotten bigger and bigger. And we meet more farms. We find out about more people who care about farms, more food activists. And it's just grown, you know, organically well, from this small disorganized I, gathering to something that's wow. <laughs> I tell everybody you put the farm back into La Jolla Farms because <laughs> this place is a, a veritable farm. Are there going to be farm and livestock here tonight in addition to your own? Or uh? Yeah, we ha- we always, you know, we have some, we work with some young farmers, little kids I from know. as young as 10. And they bring their animals I know, and a, a they kid, show them. It's fantastic. A kid, a kid sold his goat for 1500 bucks last year, yes. which is about double what he normally gets. So Actually, there's a great chef, Hannes Cavan, who's mm-hmm. a chef at the Carnita Snack Shack mm-hmm. in Smokehouse Kings. He, uh, several years ago, uh, bought an animal from one of the kid farmers that was here. And mm-hmm. each year has bought a different one. Mm-hmm. And I think he's, he spent over $10,000 over the last several years to support these young farmers. Wow. And I think hats off to him. Well, we're in a magnificent setting, like six acres. I mean, this is a magical night. Uh, it's just a farm dinner. What's <laughs> <laughs> it well, outside? You know, everyone's at a big, long picnic tables. It's about now. This year's like two hundred and what fifty ish. Yeah, two fifty. We can't get any bigger. We don't have any more room. You know, between the animals and the farm and the vegetables, you know, we, and, we, and, we are and where the we are. chefs. They all volunteer, right? Yeah, I'll tell you. Let me tell you about this dinner. It may be giant. You know, two hundred fifty people here as guests and probably 250 more here helping in some capacity but it is truly a communal event literally every farm that comes gives what they can some produce some meat Um, we have winemakers who donate beer makers everyone in this food community 
give something to come to this dinner. The chefs work for free. I mean, it, it's truly extraordinary. Yeah. I, I mean, how I don't know of another dinner quite many, like it. To how be many courses tonight? It's usually. Uh, it's well, you know, we, like, we did get a little bit crazy for a few years and like, like 13 courses, yeah. but we realized that's impossible. Most people would die before they finish mm. that meal. So we have a little bit of a cocktail hour for two hours. That's happening right now. And uh, people get to try the food. And then we have a six course meal, which is a little bit more manageable. Yeah. I, and by the way, we're not totally live tonight. We're actually about an hour ahead of ourselves because uh, the guests decided they would rather be at the dinner than doing live radio at <laughs> seven. So. But anyway, we've got a, a two more important guests here, Michelle. We have Troy Johnson, who's a well-known restaurant critic, a food writer. He's a host of the, the event tonight or the, uh, M- the MC for the second year in a row. Also a Food uh, Network star. I don't know if you know that. Right. So he's with San Diego Magazine, and he's with the Food Network. So, Troy, how you doing? I'm doing well. Good to see you, buddy. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, you've been coming to this for several years now, and you've been emceeing. You know, this will be your second year. Yeah. Or as it says the last two, is this your third time? This is my second time. So, okay. Yeah. So what brings you to the event and what keeps you coming back? You know, I didn't come here for a couple of years because I thought it was just going to be some dinner. I thought it was just <laughs> a dinner, you know, where everybody was just going to go and have a feast and, you know, really nothing was going to get done. And I think the first time that you come to this dinner, you realize how much progress is actually behind it and how much unity happens at the dinner. And that's what made me come back. Mm-hmm. Because as a food critic, we fetishize food. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're part of the problem, to be quite honest with you. I have mm-hmm. to take pictures of so much food. I have to fetishize meat. There's a massive meat consumption problem in America that we need to address at some point in time. Have you and put any weight on since you started being a food critic? <laughs> a, tr- a treadmill is probably my biggest <laughs> office tool. Yes. Um, you know, so, yeah, I have to I have to have a two-bite rule because otherwise I you yeah. know, have to be 450 pounds and block out the sun for my loved ones. Yeah. You know, but the... <laughs> The, um, I mean, the, the point about this is that I know a lot of people do it and want to do a lot of good things in San Diego, ranchers, chefs, pr- progressive people, but there wasn't one place where they actually could come together, make hand-to-hand, face-to-face relationships, and actually form relationships that get stuff done. And these are all the big names in food in the, in yeah. the, whole, in the whole county here and, and beyond. And Baja, too. Now, we're, tonight, we're reaching out to yeah. Baja. Not just tonight. For several years, oh, yeah, we've had just, both uh, sides of, course, of the border. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think their wine is finally making a statement uh, over here, right? It is. The Baja yeah, it's fantastic. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the foundation itself now that's grown out of this, the Very Good Food Foundation. Uh, you're on the advisory board, uh, or are you on the board itself? Um, I'm on the advisory board, Advisory yeah. board. So wh- why are you supporting it, and, and what do you hope to accomplish? Well, I think it's great that it's grown from you know a dinner and a cause into an actual foundation that's going to be going out into the community and having dinners on farms and teaching people and reaching, you know, teaching people about local food and why it's important. I mean, we have a massive broken food system in America. Mm -hmm. It is really great at creating, you know, like, you know, really cheap calories that you can buy in the liquor store and your life can end a lot shorter. But we don't have really good small food communities throughout the country. San Diego being one of the most, you know, prolific agricultural places in America did not have a unifying body. And I really think that the BGFF, the Very Good Food Foundation, could you know, actually be that. Could be that unification. Kind of like in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure when the, you know, they struck the guitar chord and it unified the entire universe. universe. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's this. Mm-hmm. Ex- that's exactly how I would yeah, put Michelle it. Passed a note, uh, <laughs> Michelle uh, passed a note earlier. She said in, in terms of food secure, uh, security, we've, we're more in food insecure now. There's a larger percentage of people food insecure now than there were in, in the 1960s. Which so. is a horrifying fact, yeah. and yeah. it's true, right? And we're also, what, 25? in the world in terms of food systems that's a crime considering the you know amount of food we have available and here. most exactly. incredibly i mean it took till 2015 tell them michelle to for the fda just 
put the sustainability. Uh, That's right. For the first time in the guidelines, they're actually contemplating sustainability when it comes to what the food pyramid should look like. And that's an incredible change, right? You know, this is the other part. We haven't really talked about it yet. We, we can obviously talk about health. And I think Tana is a better person to talk about that. But let's talk about the environmental impact of what we call giant agribusiness farming, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, our bees are dying, our butterflies are dying, our waters are poisoned. You know, we're, these are not good things. You know, we, we got to keep this world going to last for a while, don't right. we? Yeah, bees and butterflies, <laughs> those are the ones that actually pollinate your food they're right. very important it, it, yeah. yeah we only have two minutes left in this segment so i want to get, get over to tana real quick because i know she's here from from kaiser permanente so tana tell us about yourself uh, real quickly what do you do there right so i am tana laura with kaiser permanente and i work in our government and community relations as a part of that i get to work on public health partnerships community partnerships and investing um you know some of the things that we believe at kaiser in total health um, beyond our doors into the community i'm really excited to be joining the foundation to help kind of connect the healthcare community with the food community. I think Good. you'll see here tonight, you have everybody already connected in the food community. Well, Kaiser is very much into prevention, right? We are in preventative, prevention. Preventative medicine. I, or absolutely. A pre- yeah, hundred so. years ago, our, our country was facing infectious diseases as, a, as the number one killers. Today, we're looking at obesity. We're looking as a major driver for type 2 diabetes, for cancer, for cardiovascular disease, and a number of diseases related to even mental health and depression. So for, for me, I'm personally passionate to be here. It's also a great thing to um, partner on behalf of my company with um, the foundation as well to see how we can connect the healthcare community to the food community to address sort of the, the needs in our community related to food, our food systems, and educating our community all the way from when they walk in the fr- front door at kindergarten all the way to college in some of the programs that are going to be done with the, mm-hmm. with the foundation. Well, you're a val- valuable member of this board. So anyway, Michelle, we have about a one minute left. So let's... Uh, well, the last thing is, and I think Tana touched on it for a second, which is what we're talking about doing with this foundation. And you're going to talk to some other people who are either involved in the foundation, mm-hmm. on the advisory board, et cetera. So bottom line is outreach to the community. Now, we've been we've created a community, as Troy said, uh, among ourselves, of those in the food producing or activism world. But now we're going to reach out. We're going to have programs at some of the food desert areas in the city. Uh, we're going to have we have already started having informational dialogues at universities and other in similar forums to sort of change and open the minds of young change makers and um, we're also teaching some what you'd call fundamental home ex you know mm-hmm. skills basically look it's easier to to source food locally if you know how to cook it how to cook it easily how to cook it for the whole week how to preserve it how mm-hmm. to save it for later that this is what seasonally eating is look our grandparents understood this right but somehow in the last 50 years we've lost this skill set yeah. and we want to try to help people get it back in a way that's affordable and accessible to them and I- the last thing we're going to do is we're going to do dinners on the farm and there's a lot of people doing really fancy farm dinners but I got to tell you, what we want are farm dinners, whether educational and affordable and accessible. So nice. if the foundation has to come in and subsidize them in some way, that's what we'll do because that's we want to awesome. reach a new audience. That's awesome. Preaching to the choir doesn't get us there. I know more and more schools are, um, y- you know, tearing out lawns and putting in uh, and putting in uh, fi- uh, gardens. But anyway, thank you so much, Troy Johnson, Michelle Lyrak, and Tana Laura, uh, for being our guest this segment. We got to take a little break right now. We'll be right back with more. It's your money and your life right after this. AM 760 KFMB. All right, we're back with It's Your Money and Your Life. We've got three more important guests from the Very Good Night uh, Dinner tonight, the sixth annual, by the way. And this segment, we thought we'd focus on the drought. It's on everybody's minds these days, obviously. And um, we have uh, at the table here Scott Murray, who's been a longtime local farmer with the Edge of Urban Farms up in Vista. Hi there, Scott. Nice to see you. And then uh, BJ from Solar Rain, how do you say your last name? 
care. It's just like, care. I'm going to take care of you. Okay, so the J is silent. BJ Care from Soul Arena is here, and then also uh, Nick Palumbo from uh, which vineyard? Palumbo Family Vineyards and Winery in Temecula. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> that was easy enough. <laughs> Wasn't a trick question. <laughs> Anyway, never know. Um, well, there's a little dog here. How about that? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, look. Uh, let's start with with uh, BJ. Recently, there was. Um, what well, we should talk about solar rain a little bit and what you do. Do you, you know? Do you want to talk about that? I mean, you, you provide water. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what we did is uh, I'm an organic farmer like Scott mm-hmm. and, uh, Murray, and um, you know, water is obviously an issue, and it has been for a long time, not mm-hmm. just recently. Even mm-hmm. though now we're just talking about it, but it has been an issue for a long time. So had to come up with a way to make cleaner, yeah. better water in a more sustainable way, and and what better place to look than the ocean so we that's what we do we take ocean water we we basically mimic nature we use solar thermal energy we make clouds we cool it down we make rain and that's it we don't add anything to it it just comes out the way mother nature i think intended for all of us to drink that's great you're up in escondido correct yeah valley center valley center okay so there's been some recent articles and in, uh, including npr online uh saying that desalination may be the answer to, to the cri- uh, california's water crisis uh, do you think so well i think that there there are different options i think we can either all stop having sex and not increase the population of the planet anymore or we can do desal. <laughs> so, from I vote for diesel. Okay. Well, isn't there? I'll have cake. There's yeah. other preventive measures, aren't there? <laughs> so, um, yes, I think diesel is certainly an option. A you're not going to run. One. You're not going to run for president on that platform. I never <laughs> 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 stop having sex. Anyway, so yeah, I think it's it's obviously an option, and and uh, there's more than sixteen thousand desalination plans around the world. But the problem with the diesel plants right now Who knew that? is that, and it may take away from some of your future questions, but there's a potential problem with the uh, brine that they put back into the ocean. So. Well, the one in Carlsbad, we spent a billion bucks on that. It puts out how many million? Uh, 30, 50 million 50 a day. 50 million, yeah. And uh, how much does it cost to run, though? I think it's uh, maybe right. billions wow. of dollars. So, so the solar rain system, by the mm-hmm. way, which is solar thermal, mm-hmm. uses. I think our power bill is our plant is one hundred and forty dollars a month. Wow. Of course, we don't produce you know a million gallons a day, but um, the desal plants that are around the world are about fifty percent efficient. Mm-hmm. Our efficiency is about eighty-three percent. Mm-hmm. So a lot more efficient. So I'm, there are other ways to do it besides the RO systems that yeah, we have I'm, around the I'm world. I'm drinking right now. Your, your water right now. It's great out of these little uh, nice blue bottles. It, it, uh, where is it available uh, commercially? Or yes, it's uh, in San Diego, LA, Southern California. I mean, in general. What, sto- what stores? Uh, you Whole Foods, Jimbo's, okay. Open People's Co-op, you awesome. know, restaurants, hotels. Great, great, great. Um, and then, and I think uh, we wanted to talk about one other thing here. There's three main concerns with desalination extraction uh, and potential harm to marine life, excessive fossil fuel uh, and, and costs in desalination, which you talked about, and then uh, the harmful effect to the waste with the salty brine. Um, are all those going to be uh, uh, game breakers for that, or will they find ways around those? I mean, I think that the the extraction process is easily solved. You just got to drill diagonal under the sea level, so you can mm-hmm. you can extract through the sand, the bottom of the ocean floor. And I know they've been experimenting with that with a new plant that they're planning on doing up in Orange County. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that see that as a big problem. The um, the energy 
is obviously something that right now they're used burning fossil fuels, polluting the planet, creating global warming, doing it. Mm. Our process is way better using solar thermal, but right. I think people will eventually come around. Actually, if you listen to Jerry Brown last night mm -hmm. on KPBS, it was an interesting comment he had. He said, um, well, you know, back 100 years ago in London, they had a lot of problems with horse apples in the streets because of all the carriages. Yeah. But guess what? Then we invented the car, and that problem went away. <laughs> and I think that's kind of... What is the logic there? Exactly. It's kind of like, like... How do you like them apples? Exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of like, oh, let's just wait and something better is going to come along. So, But that's yeah. why we have the problem right now. Anyway, it looks like we're making some... Pro I had no idea there were 16,000 diesel plants. And I know Israel and the Middle East, they're they're pretty water secure, uh, a lot of countries. They and and they, they, they have to make the investment because uh, the, the source is uh, so limited. But um, let's turn to Scott here. Uh, from edge of the uh, edge of urban farm is that the, your your farm's name? That's our farm's name. Up, we're up we're dem Vista. demonstrating how a very small farm uh, can be very productive, mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the solutions. I think the challenge that we face is that everything we do, humans are eighty five percent or more water. Um, all the food we eat is eighty percent plus water. As a farmer, I sell water in fancy packages, um, and we just have to learn how to live within our means and improve our ability to use the water we have. Um, in certain parts of Hawaii on the Big Island, um, people have cisterns. It's a very old-fashioned technology. They collect the rainwater off their roof to supply part of the water they use. Hmm. Here in California, in 50 years, I predict that every building will have a cistern off of its roof. If they want to have landscaping, they'll use water that they collect. In the LA Times today, they had an article about the marijuana growers in Northern California. <laughs> They've been devastating the environment, and now they're beginning to work with the Regional Water Quality Control Board to reduce their devastation of the environment. And one of the things that they've told them is they want them to collect enough water each year to get them through the summer without having to draw water out of the creeks. That's the kind of thing that really makes sense. Our water challenge is a 200-year is a challenge in California. We're seeing right now, for example, taking out parts of lawns. So we, we have other alternatives, but agriculture still will require water. People will require water. And so we have to rethink how we're doing that. That's what we're doing on our farm. That's In this great. last little rain um, off of one section of our roof, we collected 600 gallons of water in, a, in an hour of rain. Huh. And we use that to, to water all of our landscape plants. Well, you better and get more of them. I think there's an El Nino. Is there an El Nino coming? They're supposedly coming this year. You well, know. We, we have a very good chance. I was just telling BJ, um, I'm also a conservation official. Uh, and so I work with this every day in my volunteer job as an elected official. Um, right now, we're in the midst of drought. But we're also looking at this El Nino could bring us rains like we just had in Texas to mm -hmm. end their five-year drought in the area between Houston and Austin where they had a huge amount of rain. Mm -hmm. We need to be prepared for the rain that's coming, and we should be collecting more of it in smaller areas mm -hmm. rather than huge reservoirs, which yeah. we, we can't build any more of. Well, let's hope that there's, there's a solution coming. Uh, let's turn to Nick <laughs> Palumbo from Palumbo Family Wineries, right? And yes. what part of the county are you in? We're in, uh, we're actually, I can, from my back porch, I can uh, stare at San Diego County, but we're in Temecula. Oh, Temecula. Is, yeah. Okay. Well, that's where all the wineries, yeah. right? Uh, and we're, yeah, an hour drive from where we're sitting right here in Long yeah. Well, you're close enough. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But um, how has the drought affected your, your business and what changes have you made to adapt? Well, you know, I, I'm in the wine business, so I'm bringing the glass half full. Um, mm. You know, it's uh, here comes the good news. Um, uh, BJ mentioned that this isn't new. It, it's in vogue. It's in the news. It's everybody's talking about and uh, for good reason. But um, I found out a long time ago uh, with my own vineyards, uh, we're not just a winery. We are a full-functioning farm, self-sustaining, and uh, you know, we grow all, all our own grapes. So we're farmers first. And I found out, found out a long time ago that by uh, using RDI, uh, you know, regulated deficit irrigation practices, that we ended up with a better quality product. Mm. And, uh, you know, even before that, uh, vines take a lot less water than just about every other crop out there. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, you know, don't ask me on the particulars, but uh, I do believe and have have, uh, read that uh, vineyards take less water than homes uh, per acre. Um, That's the the good news Mm -hmm. in terms of the drought. I've been been working towards using less water for a long time. Mm. And... uh, yeah, it just just happens to make a better quality product, um, you know, which is really interesting because if my job or participation in the uh, wine, um, the sustainable wine growing program, which is statewide, uh, part of our uh, part of our uh, mission is to educate others to uh, if you lose use less water, it's cheaper and it's a better product. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Well, we're coming up on our next break here right now, but I wanted to thank Scott Murray with Edge of Urban Farm, BJ Care with Solar Rain, and Nick Palumbo, uh, Palumbo Family Vineyards, for being our guests. We'll be right back. Get out there and enjoy the dinner, you guys. We'll be right back with more It's Your Money, Your Life right after this. Hang on. All right, we're back with the second half of It's Your Money and Your Life. This is the uh, time where Richard usually thanks our sponsors, but I guess I have to do that tonight. So first off, we'd like to thank UBS and the wealth management team of Michael Caranta and Drew Friedis. They do a great job serving high net worth families. Uh, Carl Shearer with the Berkeley Research Group, a valuation expert extraordinaire, and uh, he's got a great new office up at Century City. And... Um, also, cost segregation initiatives and Joel Grushkin, and they save property owners millions of dollars in taxes. Uh, if you've got uh, some large properties, you ought to contact Joel. And Polito Epic, the greatest CPA planet, uh, firm on the planet, according to Richard, and I, uh, I never argue with him about that. And Signature Analytics and Jason Kruger, they just opened another office. I, I know they're in Denver. They're in a f- few states now. They are the best uh, CFO for hire firm out there, and, in addition to a lot of other financial services. And the Geiger Law Office and Brenda Geiger, great in estate planning and asset protection and wealth management. Uh, she's always been, she's been a great guest on this show. And Lane Elliott and the California Republic Bank, serving um, uh, high net worth families and, and family offices. And the Lombardi Group, which uh, train a lot of CPAs and, and law f- and becoming more f- efficient and effective in their practices. And Hub International and, and Mars Maddox and Associates. Uh, actually, we had Neil Stelion, Stelion, whose brother is a farmer, we, who was a guest on the show, I believe, last year. And uh, they are one of the greatest employee benefits firms out there. And finally, Paul Hines with uh, Ending Financial Elder Abuse. Paul's a financial planner, but uh, his passion is to uh, get, eradicate the elder abuse from the planet, especially these financial scams out there. He'll be the guest next week, by the way. So anyway, we've got uh, three more great guests in this uh, 
This segment's all about food waste, and let's get right to it. We have uh, the owner of the Red Door Restaurant Wine Bar, Trish Watlington. Uh, Trish, how are you? I am excellent. Thank you. How are you? Great, great. And we have Flora Franco. She's a chef and entrepreneur and in charge of all the... Well, give us your title, Chef. Well, I'm the culinary director for the Berry Goodnight um, Dinner. Right. That's going on right now yes. at this magnificent place amongst the African art and, and uh, all the animals and everything out there. It's, it's unbelievable. And Jamie Frisch, food activist with Meat Collective, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. Hi, Jamie. So um, let's see here. What to do? The, the, the salient points we wanted to talk about... Uh, so like Trader Joe's founder is, is launching markets in low-income communities and using throwaway groceries that are still good, and, and only uh, the sell-by date is expired. The groceries are also used in on-site restaurants. You, are we seeing more of that? Is, is that how, do we, how do we preserve food or, or uh, reduce waste? Uh, Trish, you want to jump in on that? Or if that, if you don't want to talk about it, talk about it. How, how you know how, how you've uh, done it at your place? You just won a Farm to Table Award in San Diego, so we did. And um, how we do it at our place is we use everything. We use every scrap of everything there is. So if we grow a beet, we use the top. We use the root. We do that with every plant that we grow or that we buy. Um, That's and, awesome. And we proportion our food correctly so that very little of it comes back to the kitchen. But when it does, we're working on a new program with. Um, with, with someone in San Diego who's working on a post-consumer waste program for food from restaurants so that it can be composted. The things that we do use that can't be eaten, we compost, and they all come back to our garden. Hmm. Um, but our chef, Carrie, is the queen of using and preserving everything, including whole animals, which is Jamie's department. Excellent. Now, you're a member of the advisory board of the Very Good Food Foundation. So what do you hope to, the foundation can accomplish? One of the things that I really hope the foundation can accomplish is bringing food to individuals who ha- live in food deserts who don't have access to good healthy nutritional food and and teaching them how to use it because mm-hmm. a lot of people even when they get access don't necessarily know what to do with it hmm. and then uh jamie you're with me collective what is that exactly uh so we source whole animals that are sort of the pinnacle of ethically raised high quality meat for individuals and families in San Diego in particular. Kind of a CSA of, of meats would you say somewhat or no? Uh not a CSA uh you know really what we do is people come they're looking for say they want beef and we explain to them how they can get it through these um different channels because Ooh. it's not USDA. It doesn't come from a supermarket. Oh. This comes straight from a farm, really, really good farms. Wow. And it's a different process. You're buying it what's called on the hoof. So they, can only, they can only get it from you, right? From your organization? or If they know a farm, they can yeah. get it. But we found um, the, re- the whole reason we started is that it's really hard to know. I mean, there's millions of people here and I didn't know any farmers when I first moved to San Diego. Mm. And when I met them and I saw this amazing work that they were doing, I, I felt like other people really wanted this too. Hmm. You know, by the way, folks, uh, we'll have all these websites and, uh, and all this guest information on our website, iymoney.com, so you'll be able to track these people down if you, if you want to get in touch with them for any reason. Um, but anyway, uh, um, uh, Jamie, is, is eliminating food waste an ethical consideration? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's also a common sense consideration. You know, we have so much food that we do throw out in our household. We have two kids and We've gotten to a point where uh, through the, you know, we have a little bit of a hobby farm, but through that, we're able to not waste any food, I feel. Mm-hmm. And it, it is an ethical consideration, but again, it's really just common sense. You know, you have food that 
is good. You have parts, if you get a chicken, you know, you can use that entire chicken, the bones. I mean, that's food. You mm-hmm. need to make stock out of that. That's what you give your kids when they're, when they're sick. You don't throw those bones in the trash. Mm-hmm. You know, you pick that thing clean and you... Uh, make you, stock out of it, right? Or yeah, yeah, everything. And, the, and same thing with beef, you know. There's all these different cuts of beef that are weird things. You've never heard of them because you've been getting pushed tri-tip. Don't, they, know, all, don't they all wind up in a hot dog anyway? <laughs> <laughs> they can. They can end up in a really high-end sausage, you know. Okay. I, w- I would hope so. Now, is this part of what prompted you to create the Controversial Death for Food program? In a way, um, yeah, you know, but when I made that, when I started that program, that was, I didn't really know what was, I just felt like something was wrong. Um, maybe you could explain what the Death for Food program was, um, because maybe our listeners haven't, haven't heard. Um. Yeah, so Death for Food was a program where uh, we basically wanted to connect people to the fact that these were living animals and that we kill them and that we eat them. And it's a big deal. I think it's a big deal to to kill a you know 1,400-pound steer mm-hmm. and eat it. And what happens then, we found, is that this it fosters a greater respect for the animal. And if I raise this animal, or even if I just know that it's coming from a living animal... I'm not going to throw any of it out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to use all of that. I'm going to be sure every last little bit mm-hmm. gets put to use. And I'm going to appreciate it more. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. Of course, I know there was a big vegan uh, counter, counter opinion on, on these things. But uh, let's face it, I think humans are omnivores and, uh, you know, deal with it. <laughs> I mean, is we, are they going to pass a law that we can't eat any more pork or beef or, or you know, or can, can only eat, you know, soybeans or corn, I don't know. But No, but I think when you know where your food comes from and when you have a connection to the animal, then you do eat less meat because yeah. it's an automatic more, change. Yeah. You have respect for what you've what you're eating. Mhm. Who you're eating. Absolutely. Mhm. Um, so let's turn to Flora here, Flora Franco, known her a while, and uh, how important is eliminating food waste to you? It's the basics to change a whole community. I think um, one of the things that I I see a lot, and I try to teach, you know, to people, if you have less choices on your food, that's number one. I mean, when when you really want to create an environment where you're not wasting, your choices they they need to go maybe to a third of what you're putting in your pantry in your fridge right now. Mm-hmm. And then how do we go about bringing this kind of change around and change to our community? What do you think? Education. I, uh, one of the big things that we're doing through the Berry uh, Foundation is the, the Berry uh, Academy. And that brings a lot of uh, information, a lot of classes, a lot of segments that we're putting together throughout San Diego. And I, I think once people know what to do, how to treat food, and, and, and they know that maybe getting together with the neighbor, with the family, and they can make their cheese, they can make uh, the salads. Um, that's, I think, the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Outstanding. So um, uh, it's just been a
right, I want you to get out there and enjoy the cocktails and enjoy the dinner some more. And it's been a real pleasure having Trish Watlington, Flora Franco, and Jamie Frisch here. They'll get all the information on our website, so not, not to worry about that. And I uh, really appreciate you being our guest. And, and the Red Door Restaurant's up in Mission Hills, right? Yeah. Washington, near, um, uh, near Goldfinch up there. Beautiful place. So, all right, enjoy. Thank you very much for being our guest. And uh, we'll see you out, outside having some good fun. Okay? Wonderful. We'll be right back with It's Your Money and Your Life right after this. AM 760 KFMB. All right, we're back with the final segment of It's Your Money and Your Life, and we've got a great last segment on bees. It's all about the, the bee colony collapse and honeybees, etc. Honeybee colonies are diminishing as a result of pesticides, the neonicotinoids, if I'm saying that right, and uh, we'll get to the full story of that in, in, uh, in a few minutes. We have with us for this segment um, Hillary Kearney, who raises honeybees. Hi, Hillary. Hi. Can you tell us about uh, you, you and your... Your enterprise. Yeah, so yeah. I do an urban beekeeping business. and uh, Where are you located? I'm actually all over San Diego, San Diego County. I'm even into some unincorporated areas. Um, but what I do is place beehives in people's backyards as a service, and I take care of them for them. So my business is all about integrating bees back into the community, getting people used to living with bees again. And really the larger picture is about bringing awareness um, to people's local environment, I feel like bees can be a really good connector between the peoples and their immediate setting, right? So you see, you do something to your bees and you see the immediate effect on your environment. If, you're pe- if your neighbor uses pesticides, for example, and your bees die, you see that effect right in your backyard. So... So th- this says here that uh, you're actually you're in the rescue bees uh, business. Yeah, I, I do live bee removal too. I do beekeeping classes, so I do pretty much everything. Um, so like when a call comes into the county that uh, bees are swarming somewhere, do you kind of get involved in that and try? I'm to- not involved with the city or the county um, doing removals for them, but p- privately, you know, people call me. Homeowners get bees on their property, and they call me to do live removal hmm. of those bees. So uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that. Um, that's an option that you can do a live removal of a bee colony. They think you have to call an exterminator, but there's actually a lot of us doing live bee removal around San Diego, really? San Diego County. Yeah. How, how many operations are going? Would you say? I have no idea. There's over 20. There's a lot of people doing it. Hmm. Well, it makes great sense because obviously we're we're challenged. And um, what do you think is the biggest threat to bees right now? I absolutely think it's the neonicotinoids. Um, I think that's the overarching problem that it weakens their immune system and scrambles their neurological systems and Mm. it makes it difficult for them to do everything that they do well. So they, because it scrambles their neurological system, so much of what they do is navigation to and from food, to and from the hive. They're unable to do that as efficiently, takes them longer or they can't do it at all. Mm. And then because their immune system is compromised, anything that comes along, all these things that are mentioned, you know, as possible reasons for the global collapse, like mites or, you know, fungicides and all these different things, other pesticides, um, climate change, all those things, basically what it means is they're less able to cope with it. And, and a lot of commercially sold plants these days are treated with, with that, right? Exactly. Yeah. So when you go into a big box nursery or even a small scale nursery, they're mostly buying their plants from the same kind of growers. So they're all sourcing from the same few growers and those growers are all treating with Is there meat. a way you can determine from uh, when you go into these stores if they're using this or not? Or At Lowe's and Home Depot, they're now labeling mm-hmm. if it's treated with a neonic, but most places, no. So like Ace Hardware, no. 
Hmm. Well, we have a real expert also uh, in the room tonight, and his name is Dave Schubert. He's a, a scientist over at Salk Institute. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit about your MD, PhD? Uh, um, I'm a neuroscientist. Uh-huh. I work at Salk Institute on the faculty for 50 or 45 years. Oh, my so gosh. I've been around there for a while. and So, so you I, must have known Dr. Salk himself, huh? Yeah, quite well. He oh was a gosh. neighbor of ours. Oh, for gosh. Oh, my and gosh. So the... Um, my interest has historically been in the GM uh, problems associated with GM food and health issues. Mm-hmm. And so the the fact that the neonics are systemic insecticides, I've sort of been interested in for quite a while. And they also affect the nervous system. That's how they work. They're knockoff compounds of, of nicotine, which is a neurotoxin. Yep. And so... Um, Recently, been, there's been a lot of debate about the, you know, the toxicity of this. You can get uh, information from both sides. The producers have one view. The, some of the more academic scientists have another. And the last few weeks, there have been a series of papers coming out in very high-end scientific journals, which more or less document the fact that these neonics are one of the major contributors to the to the, um, the colony collapse. Was this a, a synthesized in the lab at some uh, large company? Yeah, that... it was. There's two, um, you know, and people who groups have made this shell. It was one of the first in 1970s and 80s, and then uh, Bayer came in, and Bayer's the Bayer. primary, the the primary producer now, I believe. Now I need an aspirin. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the bee colony collapse issue. Uh, how how bad is it, and uh, is there any way we can turn it around? you have any opinions, either of you? Or, you well, what's national? interesting is that um, that 40% loss rate for commercial beekeepers doesn't really apply to beekeepers like myself. So I'm an urban beekeeper, and I'm doing things a little differently from what they do. So there's so many stressors going into commercial beekeeping, like they load up their bees, they put them on a giant semi, and they literally drive them across the country um, back and forth to the crops that are blooming. They put them in these huge monocrop settings. Their nutrition is limited because they're only accessing one kind of flower. And then they're getting exposed to a whole host of pesticides and fungicides. So when I'm putting them in a backyard setting, I absolutely believe they're getting exposed to pesticides still. People have them on their plants. You know, they buy them that way. They are unaware. Um, but I don't have as many stressors as they do. So I am not losing 40% of my colonies. Hmm. Um, in fact, I think I lost zero this last year. Huh. Dave, do you have any opinions on the bee colony collapse issue? I think you mean that we should follow the example of Europe in a number of respects. I mean, this is one of them. Um, they have more of a precautionary principle with their both the GM products and also the insecticides, herbicides, and so Wasn't on. Wasn't it in Poland they brought <laughs> a, a, a large amount of dead bees right to the city hall or something? Right, well, the, the neonics now are basically outlawed most countries huh. in Europe, and uh, the United States is very slow on this, and <laughs> they still are allowed. And the seed coating, you know, from a scientific point of view, and even the EPA agrees, the seed coating is not very effective like in uh, soy, GM soy, for example, it's used essentially 100%. And the, there's an EPA paper saying it really doesn't do anything, but the producers are still you know, pushing this stuff to hmm. a high extent. So but, do we have any definitive studies uh, that either of you know about the relating health impacts regarding GM food and, and um, you know, the neonicotinoids or herbicides? Has uh, there been anything? On humans, you mean? Yeah. Well, I think this is a, my major concern because we do drug 
development for neurodegenerative disease and Alzheimer's primarily. And so we're very concerned about the nervous system, and that's what we study. And uh, and it's quite clear that the, you know this new agricultural paradigm where this, the chemicals are now in your food, and this is certainly true with the neonics and with glyphosate and and uh, some of these other like 2,4-D in the future, which is in the GM plants are now becoming resistant. They're making resistant to that. We're eating it and we're exposed to that at quite a high level and the levels are increasing the more GM products you have out there. Mm -hmm. So it's a major health issue and there's quite serious science showing that these are, are can affect human health. I mean, I've been seeing some articles or studies uh, talking about auto, the increase in autoimmune disease among children, asthma, and things like that. Autism. Uh, autism. Um, why is that increasing? I mean, it's either something in the environment or something they're ingesting or some genetic mutation. In, it's not a, so this is quite clear. It's not genetic. Okay. I mean, it can't be genetic. So, okay, good. So it's got to be something environment. And if you look sort of where there's been this increase in in a lot of these diseases, and primarily in children, and you know, developmental diseases, it, it correlates with the introduction of the GM products and the neonics and a lot of the, the systemic insecticides. So, the, mm -hmm. so I think it's very difficult to do epidemiology. It's very difficult because this stuff's so ubiquitous. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of animal study. If you like, we do drug development, and so we have the FDA requires. Um, testing and serious toxicity testing there none of that's done with these products so. yeah anyway we're, we're in our last minute right now so we have to wrap it right up but uh, hillary you're doing outstanding work you're just a, a, a young a young lady i'm very impressed with the kind of work you do how long have you been doing it five years five years wow uh well, hey, thanks for being our guest hillary carney and uh dave schubert professor over at sock institute we really enjoyed having you i'd like to thank dave sniff who came all the way from kfmb to do the technical uh, work tonight on the show and i don't know who's back on the board in the studio but thank you uh whoever there is there and thanks to our account executive uh, uh craig blanke richard Musio. i hope you're having a great time at the uh the graduation we're going to get out to the berry dinner now and enjoy some great food you have a great night everybody and we'll see you next week paul hines will be our guest all these shows are on iymoney.com and we'll see you next week good night